Listen now to the word of the Lord. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I listen to Tim Hawkins. I love that clip because it points out a reality that some of the songs that we sing around Christmas time. They're nonsensical. They don't make much sense, right? I mean, where in the Bible does it say that the sheep are speaking uh, to the shepherds? That doesn't happen. And when this cold baby Jesus, did they bring them silver and gold? What about a blanket? That probably would have been better. What are these words that we sing? Sometimes they don't make sense, do they? In fact, the hymn we sang, the carol we sang just a moment ago, We Three Kings, actually isn't biblically that accurate. Because if you look closely at what the Bible has to say, it doesn't say that there were three kings. It tells us that there were were magi, wise men from the east who came to bring gifts. There were three of those gifts. It wasn't silver and gold. To see what the Bible says, to see what really happened and why it makes a difference in our lives today, I would encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 2 is on page 1026 of your Red Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 2 beginning with verse 1, page 1026 of your Red Pew Bible. I would encourage you to take out that Red Pew Bible so you can follow along with me this evening. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired Matthew to put pen to paper so that we might have your written word today. We thank you, Lord, for this story that we come to again year after year, and let, Lord, that as we look at this story, that you might speak to us afresh and anew this evening. Help us to hear from you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter two, beginning with verse one. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king of the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And where were these wise men from exactly? Well, the Greek word for wise men here is magos. It can be translated as magi, magicians, or wise men. And the origin of this word magos actually comes from Persia. And so most scholars believe that these wise men traveled from Persia, or what would be today modern-day Iran. These wise men, these astrologers, these watchers of the stars have traveled all the way from Persia to Jerusalem to worship the newborn king. That's a distance of over 900 miles In order to put that in perspective, that would be as if we got into a car and we drove all the way to Nashville, Tennessee. Has anybody ever driven to Nashville, Tennessee before out here? That's a long drive. You should take a plane next time. It's really far, far distance. Yes, these men have traveled a very long way, over 900 miles, and they didn't have a plane, they didn't have a car. They had camels or donkeys or mules, pretty stubborn animals, right? And they had to walk. And it didn't take days, it took weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks for them finally to arrive in Jerusalem to worship the newborn king of Jerusalem, the newborn king of the Jews. But what's most remarkable is not that they traveled this distance. What's most surprising is what happens in Jerusalem when they get there. For when they find King Herod, they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This news actually troubles Herod and we were told all of Jerusalem. Rather than celebrating the gift of God's one and only son, the Messiah, the savior of the world, they are troubled. Herod is troubled. And so he goes to his scribes and the chief priests and he asks them, where is the Messiah to be born? And the chief priests and the scribes wisely point to Micah chapter five, verse two, which says, and you, O Bethlehem, And the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Now, in the first century, most scholars tell us that Bethlehem was less than 1,000 people. We don't know the exact population, but we do know the distance. It was just less than six miles, a very short distance. Imagine how excited the Magi or the wise men must have been to learn that we're only six miles, less than six miles away from our destination. That's the distance shorter than a 10K. Have you ever run a 10K before? I never have, but I've heard it's not that bad. (laughs) How excited they must have been. Let's come on, guys, let's go to Bethlehem to see the newborn king of the Jews. But notice that Herod and the scribes and the chief priests and the leading Jews of their day, none of the Jews from Jerusalem joined them on their short journey to Bethlehem. Why is it that these religious leaders in Jerusalem stay home in Jerusalem and don't join the Magi on this short, less than six-mile journey to Bethlehem to see the newborn king of the Jews? Why do they stay in Jerusalem? Well, history tells us that Herod was a brutal, harsh king who was very insecure as a leader. He actually killed one of his own family members because he thought they might try to usurp him and and become king in his stead. And Herod actually wasn't a Jew by birth. He was actually an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, so he wasn't a descendant of Jacob. He was raised as a Jew, but he wasn't actually a Jew. And he became a leader of Israel by Mark Antony of Rome, who appointed him to become Tetrarch, and eventually he was uh, appointed by the Roman Senate to become king of the Jews. And Herod did some great building projects while he was king, but all the time he was anxious, worried about becoming overthrown, someone rising up against him and trying to take his throne. He was a very insecure leader. That's why as you continue reading Matthew chapter 2, you'll see that After the wise men don't return, he orders that every baby boy under the age of two in Bethlehem should be killed. He doesn't want to meet his successor. He doesn't want to meet the newborn king of the Jews. He wants to have him killed because he's such an insecure leader. Herod was afraid of this newborn king. That's why Herod didn't want to go to Bethlehem. But what about the scribes? What about the religious leaders? What about the the chief priests? I mean, they were experts in the law. They had appropriately quoted Micah chapter 5, verse 2 to point out that the newborn king of the Jews is going to come from Bethlehem. The Messiah will come from Bethlehem. Why didn't they go with these magi from the east to Bethlehem to see for themselves this newborn king, this Messiah, this Savior? Why did they stay home in Jerusalem? You know, I imagine the scribes and the chief priest stayed in Jerusalem for the very same reason so many Christians in America stay home on Sunday mornings. They had other things to do. I've got other plans. I just don't have time. Did you know that Gallup tells us that 75%, 75% of Americans identify themselves as Christian today? But on any given week, admittedly not this Sunday or Easter Sunday, but any other week, the other 50 weeks of the year, only 17% of Christians in America are in worship, corporate worship together. Why don't more Americans go to worship on a weekly basis? What are most of the Christians doing on Sunday morning if they're not, in fact, in worship? I mean, if 75% of our country are Christians, then our churches should be filled most Sundays, and tonight we are, but, but most Sundays we're not. 
Why aren't more Christians in worship on Sunday morning? What are they doing if they're not here in worship? Well, I really don't know because I'm always here on Sunday mornings. But I imagine that, you know, like I did in college, maybe they're sleeping in or maybe they're having a leisurely brunch with somebody or, or maybe their kids have a sporting event or maybe they're playing golf or they're out of town or they're working. They have other plans, other commitments, other priorities. Besides, do we really need to come together in corporate worship every week? I mean, can't we do it once or twice a year? Isn't that enough? I had someone tell me once that they actually feel closer to God on the golf course than they do in the sanctuary. Now, I'm a golfer. I love a beautiful golf course, and I do feel close to God in the midst of his creation. I'm not a good golfer, but I like to play. I do feel close to God in the midst of his creation, and I have heard Jesus' name on the golf course once or twice before, (laughs) but it wasn't in a form of praise, believe me. Why is it that so few Christians in America go to worship on Sundays? But do we need to? I mean, is it really a priority? What does the Bible say? We know that one of the Ten Commandments is to honor the Sabbath, to keep it holy. And, of course, we worship Jesus on Sunday because it was a Sunday, the first day of the week that Jesus rose again. And so ever since Jesus' resurrection, we've been worshiping Jesus on Sunday. We've been told to keep the Sabbath holy, to worship God on, on the Sabbath. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are all members of the body of Christ. And the hand cannot say to the eye, I don't need you. No, we all need each other. We've all been given different spiritual gifts, different abilities. I I can't play the organ like Norman. I can't sing at all like you, Mary. That was great. Uh, I can't uh, play the violin like Diana. I I need to, we all need to come together so that we might encourage and edify one another using our gifts in ministry. Yes, if we aren't connected to the body of Christ, then we're like an amputated body part. Like a hand that's not connected, is unable to function or move or do all that it was designed to do. Yes, we need to be connected to the body of Christ. In fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18 that when two or more are gathered together in his name, he is there. We need to come in community together so we might receive the mutual encouragement and accountability that comes with gathering together in corporate worship together. Worship is good for our soul. It's a foretaste of heaven where every tribe and every tongue will gather together and to worship Almighty God together saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His worship prepares us for heaven, which is particularly important for us to be reminded of this season, isn't it? For during this Christmas season, we gather together and I know that many of the families in our church have lost a loved one in this year or recent years and when we gather together for corporate worship or gather together at that meal they're no longer there that seat is now empty and we miss them but the good news of the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ is that everyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord, will be with Jesus in paradise. We know that our loved ones who have died, who have gone ahead of us in glory, are now with Jesus in paradise, gathering together at the heavenly banquet table, celebrating the love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, we need to come together in corporate worship so that we might come to this table to be reminded of God's great love for us. Christ's body given for us, Christ's blood shed for us. 
This table is a foretaste of that heavenly banquet table. As we come to this table together, we celebrate with the saints who have gone before us God's amazing love. And we call this meal communion because it's a communal meal. It's not intended to be served alone. No, we are called to come together as the body of Christ, as one body worshiping Jesus, gathering together, seeking to use our gifts in ministry, encouraging one another, edifying one another through the presence, knowing that Christ, when we're, we're together, Christ's presence is made known to us in our worship together. Yes, we need to be in corporate worship so that we can all become who we were designed to be, using our gifts and ministry as one body together. We need to come together in corporate worship so that we might come to this table and as the saints who have gone before us who are already at that heavenly banquet, we might celebrate God's love. And we need to come together in corporate worship so that we can recenter our hearts and minds on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace. If you look in your bulletin, you'll see that the title of tonight's message is Rescuing Christmas from Idols by Worshiping the One True King. If you've been with us the last few Sundays, you know that we've been going through a series on how we are to avoid the idols of our culture. Using Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller is a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He's written a wonderful book called Counterfeit Gods. We've been talking about all the different idols that that our culture tries to bring to us. And and well, Keller defines an idol as this. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Whenever we give priority to anything above God, we're guilty of the sin of idolatry. Whenever we seek to find our sense of identity and our sense of meaning and our sense of purpose in anything other than God, we are guilty of the sin of idolatry. During the first week of our sermon series, you'll remember that we talked about the the primary idol of our culture is money. People want to identify themselves and find their security and their sense of identity in the money they have. But we know that ultimately that is an empty idol because we cannot take any of it with us. There'll never be enough. Then we talked about the idol of, of family, how even a good thing like family can become an idol if we seek to make it an ultimate thing. When parents try to seek to put their identity in the, uh, in the success and failures of their children, when they look to their children to bring them peace and happiness, they have become an idol. And that will never satisfy. And finally, last week we talked about the temptation of trying to find our meaning and our comfort in the stuff that we own. Advertisers are constantly telling us that if we buy this or if we purchase this, then we'll be content, then we'll be happy. We know those promises are empty. As Michael Ann pointed out so beautifully in last Sunday's uh, uh, children's sermon, the board game Life, if you've ever played that before, you know at the end, the person with the most money wins. But that's not how it is in the kingdom of God, is it? Victory for us is found in Christ's resurrection. Victory for us is found in using our time and our talents and our treasures for the sake of God's kingdom. For we, like the servant in Matthew 25, who took five talents and was able to produce five more talents, we pray and hope that God might look at us one day and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share the joy of your master's happiness. Yes, last week we talked about one of the best ways to battle the sin of greed 
which our culture often promotes, is to give. To give stuff away, to go through those closets and give those clothes we haven't worn in a really long time. To give away those toys that we haven't played with for a very long time. As we give things away, our heart turns to God. As we give of our time and our talents and our treasures to do the work of God's kingdom, our heart follows and we grow in our relationship with Jesus. And our impact for his kingdom grows as well. It's in our text today, the Magi, the wise men, give three wonderful gifts to Jesus. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is a great gift for a king, for he is the king of kings. Gold was the most precious metal at the time, a sign of wealth and prosperity. Frankincense is a wonderful gift for Jesus because he is the great high priest, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11. And frankincense was one of the ingredients of holy incense used for worship in the tabernacle, according to Exodus 30. And in the book of Hebrews, Jesus ultimately offers himself as the perfect sacrifice, as you read about in Hebrews chapter 11. And so he gives him myrrh. Myrrh was used for embalming dead bodies. By giving the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, Matthew is helping us see that these wise men wisely gave great gifts to Jesus. Gold for the king of kings. Frankincense for the great high priest. Myrrh for the perfect sacrifice. But the greatest gift that the wise men gave to Jesus that evening was not the gold, it wasn't the frankincense, and it wasn't the myrrh. It was their worship. Their worship. The Greek word for worship is proskuneo in verse 11. It can also be translated as to to kneel down. Can you imagine what Mary was thinking when these Persian astrologers who've traveled over 900 miles come to Bethlehem and they kneel down and begin to worship the Christ child? What Mary must have been thinking as these men worshiped her son Yes, giving is a great way to to battle greed. But worship, worship is the best way to battle idolatry. Tim Keller points out that idolatry is not just a failure to obey God. It is a setting of the whole heart on something besides God. This cannot be remedied only by repenting that you have an idol or using willpower to try to live differently. Turning from idols entails joyful worship a sense of God's reality in prayer. Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That is what will replace your counterfeit gods. If you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. By making that 900-mile journey from pagan Persia to Bethlehem, these wise men have wisely abandoned the idols of their homeland so they might worship the one true king. And we need to do the same. We need to seek to give all glory and honor to God each and every Sunday. Why don't we make that our New Year's resolution that in 2018, we're not gonna miss a Sunday. Somewhere, wherever we are, we're going to worship Jesus corporately with other Christians together. For when we think about the distance that the Magi traveled, shouldn't we be willing to make that journey ourselves? When we think about the distance, 
that Jesus traveled to come and save us, shouldn't we be willing to make the journey as well? For Jesus, the Son of God, left heaven in all of its glory and majesty and traveled through the cosmos to this planet, to a small village named Bethlehem, to a manger to be born, ultimately to save us. From heaven to Bethlehem, to Egypt, to Nazareth, to the Jordan River, where Jesus was baptized, to the wilderness, where Jesus was tempted, to Galilee, where Jesus preached, to Jerusalem, where Jesus was tried, and ultimately to Calvary, where Jesus was crucified for our sins, paid the price for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God once and for all, so that we might have the assurance of eternal life, so that we might have the promise of having a seat at his heavenly banquet table. If Jesus was willing to travel that far to save you and me today, won't we make the journey every Sunday to church, to worship God somewhere together so that we might celebrate the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, that we might give our best worship to him each and every Sunday? I don't know about you, but for me, it's about a 15-minute drive from my house to this church. And it's the most important drive my family makes every week. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you are the God who left heaven and came to earth to save us. You did not abandon us in our sin, but Lord, you traveled through the cosmos to a small town named Bethlehem so that you might become one of us so that you might grow up among us, so that you might teach us, so that ultimately you might die for us as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Oh God, we thank you for your great love. Help us to make the commitment that these magi made. May we travel whatever distance it takes to gather together to worship you each and every Sunday. For you alone are worthy of our worship. And it's only in the worship of you that we can become all that we were designed to be. It's only in the worship of you that we can avoid the idols of this culture and be freed from those idols and find the joy of serving you. Oh Lord, may you guide us this day and every day as we seek to bring all glory and honor to you. Your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Well, we saw in our text that the Magi, the wise men, gave gifts to Jesus. It's an act of worship. In gratitude for all that God has given to us, let us continue our worship by giving God's tithes and our offerings.